Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, May 11, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. Today's Climate Report covers all the small things being impacted by the climate imbalance, from pollen and plastic to fish and oysters and birds to insects, as well as personal solutions to help protect those creatures we rarely see as well as ourselves. All Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. You may also email climatereport at kvmr.org for more info. Before we get started, though, this is a membership drive for KVMR, and we want to do our part for our climate-concerned listeners. The nexus between non-commercial communication and climate solutions couldn't be starker. While many believe the climate and environmental crisis is a crisis of technology and or money, studies have shown we currently have all the technology and money we need to begin solving the crisis today. This is not a crisis of technology, money, ideas, or solutions. It is a crisis of communication. A lot of concerned people feel like they're waiting for instructions from authorities from above or waiting for someone else to do something big and magical or for some special amazing technology to be invented. The world's obsessive hoarders of money might be more generous at some point. Well, most of the forms of authoritative communication built in the 20th century help foster these notions of disempowerment and a sense that we're waiting for someone else to do something, whether it's radio, TV, movies, internet news, or politics. Commercial advertising, corporate media, major politicians, and the spokespeople for all of them are where most people get information about the ongoing climate crisis, and most of those forms of communication... Advertising, corporate media, major politicians are the direct arms of business and industry based on concentrated extractive wealth. Ads, media, and politicians are mouthpieces of the status quo ruling class representing the imbalanced systems that got us here, and they are unable to rapidly transform into something other than what they are, extractive, damaging business models that tend to take more than they give. This is where KVMR comes in, because there's plenty of money, technology, and solutions. We need direct, honest, and accurate crisis-level communication, which advertising, corporate media, and politicians are not trained to provide. They're highly trained to provide clever spin, designed to achieve strategic goals for their narrow interests, which is primarily made up of maintaining their slice of power over society and how it thinks, and maintaining all the systems that put them in those positions of power. Now, not all people in power are 100% like this, but 100% are to some extent. The info we need is here and available, and it needs to be shared as much as possible directly, especially person-to-person in local, uncommercial settings like KVMR Radio. So, If this resonates with you and you'd like to make sure that we continue to provide the best communication without commercial interruption and bias in regards to the climate and the imbalance and the parts that we all play here on a local level, please make sure that you pick up the phone and call 530-265-9555 right now. 
There are real humans volunteering, waiting to answer the phones to talk to climate-concerned citizens who would like KVMR to continue doing what we're doing. Any membership pledge is welcome and acceptable. Whether it's $1 or $100, whether it's a one-time pledge or an ongoing monthly amount, we greatly, greatly appreciate your support. And it lets me know that the Climate Report is appreciated and listened to. You can also go to kvmr.org to put an amount in that you feel is appropriate to pledge your support. But again, the phone number is 530-265-9555 to help us solve this crisis of communication. Now, we want to remind listeners again that art also plays a really important part in climate communications. And of course, all of the opinions and views that you hear on KVMR are those of the speaker only, not those of the board, the staff, or the volunteers. But I'm really excited to know that we have a strong artistic community that feels the concern about our interactions with nature. And Project Wild Edges is one of those artistic endeavors. It's every weekend in May. It's continuing for the next three weekends. And Project Wild Edges presents an outdoor theatrical experience exploring our relationship to nature and the values at the heart of our land practices. It's a unique outdoor trail-based performance taking place along the Wolf Creek Trail in Grass Valley. This is a wild edge where our suburban life intersects with nature. Each show culminates with a speaking of nature discussion with local experts. The project is funded by California Humanities for All Projects grants and sponsored by the Miners Foundry and the Nevada County Arts Council. For more information and for tickets and show times, you can go to projectwildedges.com. And again, that's every Saturday in May with two shows, the first at 4 and the second at 6.30. Diving into the news, we promised today's focus would be on the small stuff. So let's start with pollen. New studies show that as we've been experiencing, pollen seasons are going to continue to be longer and more intense as the climate changes. As the climate warms, allergy season here in the U.S. could get worse. According to a study published just this week in the journal Nature Communications, pollen season could start up to 40 days earlier and last 19 days longer by the end of the century if carbon emissions go unchecked. This lengthening of the pollen season would also increase annual pollen emissions in the U.S., not carbon emissions, but pollen emissions by as much as 40%. So for those that suffer from allergies and asthma, it won't just be a longer season, but there will be 40% possibly more pollen in the air to deal with. Using historical pollen data and predictive climate models, the researchers were able to paint a picture of how and when plants and trees could release pollen in the coming decades. Experts note that overall, every region in the U.S. has experienced longer and more intense allergy seasons for the past 30 years. For people with allergies or asthma, the increase in pollen could have serious consequences. Said one researcher, we think of allergies as stuffy noses and itchy eyes, but it also underlies asthma, which is a more serious condition. People will probably feel worse and need more medication as time goes on, and more people will likely become allergic to pollen as well. Now, pollen changes will look different, they say, depending on where a person lives, of course, and the composition of the plants and trees nearby. 
northern states in the U.S. are expected to experience the biggest changes, which scientists have already documented. Historically, in the spring pollen season, trees dominate. In summer, grass pollen dominates. And then in the fall, it's ragweed. Trees in the spring, grass in the summer, ragweed in the fall. But this new model predicts that those three separate seasons will begin overlapping in the summer when warming temperatures can cause some plants to flower earlier or later. The study says having the seasons overlap could multiply the misery for allergy sufferers. In other small objects, plastic and microplastics continue to be an issue, and we won't spend too much time on it because it's getting a lot of news play in the regular media cycle, but the latest numbers show that the U.S. is continuing to recycle minimal amounts of plastic. In reality, just 5% of plastic waste is being recycled here in the United States. That's down from a couple of years ago when we measured 9% recycling rate. Apparently 85% of plastic ends up in the ground in landfills. The remaining 10% is incinerated and blown into the air and 5% is actually recycled. The generation of plastic waste per person in the U.S. has increased quite a bit since 1980. In 1980, a typical American produced 60 pounds of plastic waste. Today, it's 218 pounds of plastic waste. Compared to other materials, paper is recycled at about two-thirds of its uh, original content is recycled. About 66% is recycled. Aluminum cans, 50%. Plastics, 5%. This is being identified as a major problem for the climate as the oil companies switch to producing more and more plastic, which generates emissions and also harms the natural environment and its ability to deal with the current imbalance and heal itself. In a warning to Californians in the midst of a climate-exacerbated mega-drought, Californians are increasing their water use instead of decreasing. State officials are alarmed, saying that it may be the result of disaster fatigue. California's drought is worsening, yet new figures show that in March, water usage jumped almost 20% compared with 2020, even after asking people to conserve. Californians average 77 gallons a day per person in March. That's the most water Californians have used in March since the drought of 2015. The state is going to respond by pledging to spend $100 million on a statewide advertising campaign to encourage water conservation. The first three months of 2022 have been some of the driest ever recorded, and water use instead increased slightly in January and February before exploding in March. The state is desperately requesting everyone reduce their water use as much as possible. Well, speaking of water and staying on the theme of smaller creatures, there is a new study that shows global warming risks may create the most cataclysmic extinction of marine life that the planet has seen in 250 million years. Global warming is causing such a drastic change to the world's oceans that it risks a mass extinction event of marine species that rivals anything that's happened in the Earth's 
recent past. The world's seawater is steadily climbing in temperature due to the extra heat produced from the burning of fossil fuels, while oxygen levels in the ocean are plunging and the water is acidifying from the soaking up of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. This means the oceans are overheated and increasingly gasping for breath. The volume of ocean water completely depleted of oxygen has quadrupled since the 1960s, and the ocean is becoming more hostile to life. Aquatic creatures such as clams, mussels, and shrimp are unable to properly form shells due to the acidification of water. Now, fish and marine animals that live in polar regions are the most vulnerable, according to the study, as they will be unable to migrate anywhere else to suitably cooler temperatures. Unlike tropical species who are fleeing the equators to find cooler waters, the polar animals and fish and aquatic species won't have a cooler place to go. The threat of climate change is amplifying the other major dangers faced by aquatic life, such as overfishing and pollution, both of which are ways that we can all make part of the solution, part of our daily life. Less pollution, less fish will bring the Earth's aquatic species back into balance, according to the study. In other alarming news from the reports on the small creatures, as well as solutions on what to do, canaries in the coal mine are the world's birds' new moniker. A loss of birds worldwide is signaling a changing planet. The world's birds are disappearing in large numbers as the colossal impact of humanity on the earth grows, a global review has found. There are about 11,000 species of birds spanning the globe, but the populations of half of them are falling. And birds' flight and song make them easier to study than many animals, meaning they are the best studied larger group of creatures. Bird populations are also affected not just by climate change, but destruction of habitat, pesticides, and other forms of pollution. Conservation efforts have been successful at rescuing individual species in specific locations, but billions of birds have been lost in recent decades in North America. Populations of birds in the U.S. and Canada have fallen by 3 billion since 1970. Birds are affected by all types of human activity, again, with just climate change alone causing a lot of damage and harming habitats. It's also true that domestic cats kill up to 3 billion birds a year in the United States, and in Canada, 3 million birds die every year from eating pesticides. The most threatened families of birds are those which are larger and take longer to reproduce. Researchers said people need not feel powerless in helping to reverse the decline Then added, we all have connections to birds. If a company is associated with deforestation in Brazil, don't buy stuff from them. One of the largest reasons for deforestation in Brazil is meat and beef for the U.S. consumer. They also say if everyone spares as much land as possible within their gardens for nature, that adds up to quite a large area. Well, continuing with the small creatures and what we can do to help them, They're also noticing that flying insect numbers have plunged by 60% since 2004 in Great Britain. The number of flying insects in Great Britain has plunged, according to a survey that counts splats on car registration plates. The scientists behind the survey said the drop was terrifying as life on Earth depends on insects. 
The results were from many thousands of journeys made by members of the public in the summer of 2021, compared with the similar journeys in 2004. With only two surveys so far, the researchers said it was possible that those years were unusual, either good ones or bad ones for insects, potentially skewing the data. And they say it's vital to repeat the analysis every year to build up a long-term trend. However, these new results are entirely consistent with other assessments of insect decline, including a car windshield survey in rural Denmark that ran every year from 1997 to 2017, that's a 20-year period, and found an 80% decline in abundance. This new study suggests that the number of flying insects is declining by an average of one-third every decade. At the end of every decade, one-third less insects than at the beginning. Insects are critical in maintaining a healthy environment and helping solve our climate imbalance. They recycle organic matter, pollination, controlling pests, but scientists behind a recent volume of studies concluded that they're ongoing a frightening global deterioration that is tearing apart the tapestry of life. In the 2004 survey results, only 8% of car trips failed to splat any insects at all. But in 2021, 40% of car trips did not record a single squashed bug. The possibility that newer vehicles were more aerodynamic and therefore hit fewer insects was ruled out by the data, and wet days were excluded as rain might have washed some of the splatted insects off the plates. Now, just like with helping to save the birds, demanding action from government and councils, according to the researchers, could help insects, but all of these other items that people can do immediately in their daily life can help. They say people could help insects by not using pesticides, by letting grass grow longer, and by sowing wildflowers in gardens, non-invasive local species, of course. And then lastly, one of the biggest ones that was also echoed by the bird study, if every garden and yard in the world had a small patch for insects, collectively, it would probably be the biggest area of wildlife habitat on the planet. So those are repeated suggestions from these studies about declining birds and insects to leave part of our yards and gardens alone and wild as oases. And while that might seem like a small patch, conglomerated, aggregated, and added up together, it could be the world's largest area for biodiversity. Along those same lines of solutions that are fast, easy, and anyone could practically do that don't require waiting for politicians or technologies or future promises, a lot of the solutions are right there in front of us and involve working with nature in small ways. A new climate study suggests that swapping fences for hedges can make a big difference. Gardeners and homeowners should swap their fence for a hedge, the Royal Horticultural Society is urging, as it begins a study into which species are best for tackling the climate crisis and pollution. Scientists are looking into green infrastructure, particularly in urban areas. One example of such infrastructure is using hedges to mark boundaries between properties and gardens. A team led by the Royal Horticultural Society's principal scientist will investigate the properties of different types of hedges, looking into how they provide important ecosystem services. Hedges can reduce pollution, 
improve air quality, slow the flow of rainwater, which can help with flood management. They provide shelter for wildlife, help regulate temperature through shading and cooling. And of course, every hedge is a live carbon sink. According to one of the researchers, the humble hedge is often the hero feature in any garden acting as a natural screen. They not only provide important environmental services, but are relatively cheap, long-lasting, and have only a small ground footprint. Knowing which planting combinations to choose for a hedge to get the most environmental benefit and how to look after them effectively could enable wider uptake of the public as we seek to future-proof our towns, cities, and communities. Now, the study notes that many areas have a monoculture of hedges, meaning that just one species is planted, perhaps for aesthetic purposes. While this is a traditional way to plant in a garden or urban area, the scientists fear that it can actually leave plants more susceptible to disease and limit biodiversity. In other unique ways that we are discovering working with nature might be the best way to solve the climate imbalance, There is a unique effort to use oysters to save New York City from the climate-ravaging storms that keep hitting the northeast part of the United States. It's a new project aiming to shore up the disappearing coastline of New York City's Staten Island while reviving a once-famously thriving oyster population. Quick tidbit from this great article in The Guardian says, On a recent Saturday afternoon... Diners at the Brooklyn restaurant Grand Army slurped oysters drizzled in mignonette and lemon juice against a soundtrack of hip-hop classics and funk. Unbeknownst to many of them, they were also supporting a new effort to use oyster shells as building blocks for new living coastal reefs, a transformative use that's not only restorative, but may also help protect New York City from climate change. Grand Army is one of dozens of restaurants in New York City that is currently donating all of its oyster shells to support restoration projects like Living Breakwaters. Living Breakwaters is a $100 million effort to shore up the disappearing coastline of New York City's Staten Island. The project will consist of nearly a half mile of partially submerged breakwaters strategically covered in recycled oyster reefs. As those reefs grow, the project's designers hope they will control flooding and coastal erosion while providing new habitat for abundant aquatic life. In a sense, living breakwaters is an attempt to reimagine the relationship between humans and nature in one of the world's most heavily engineered harbors. For thousands of years, oysters played a special role in the story of New York. Once a staple of the local indigenous Lenape people's diet, oysters led new European visitors later to write home in wonder of their quality, and colonizers turned them into a major industry, ultimately devastating local oyster populations through pollution and overconsumption. Living breakwaters finally broke ground in September, installing bedding stone and marine mattresses on the seafloor off of Staten Island. It's the product of seven years of planning, permitting, and testing that was started in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, a devastating storm 10 years ago in 2012 that leveled homes, tore up boardwalks, and spurred a federal funding windfall to rebuild, with Congress allocating $17 billion for New York City alone. 
This unique project is premised on the idea that adequately meeting the challenges of climate change-induced sea level rise and increasingly vicious storms requires building with nature, not just alongside it or against it. Building with oysters is an example of this so-called green infrastructure approach. When attached to rocks and other structures in water, these bivalves can help make them resilient to pounding waves. They are also efficient water filters. A single oyster can filter as much as 50 gallons of water a day, sucking out pollution and excess nutrients and enhancing overall water quality. We're going to end today's climate report touching on one more small invisible part of life with which we really depend on, and that is our soil. George Monbiot, great environmental writer, recently published a quite a long piece. We're just going to mention a couple tidbits before we blast out of here. Talking about soil, the secret world beneath our feet is mind-blowing and could be the key to our planet's future. He says, don't dismiss soil. Its unknowable wonders could ensure the survival of our species. Beneath our feet is an ecosystem so astonishing that it tests the limits of our imagination. It's as diverse as a rainforest or a coral reef. We depend on it for 99% of our food, yet we scarcely know it. Soil. Under one square meter of undisturbed ground in Earth's healthy mid-latitudes, there might live several hundred thousand small animals. And roughly 90% of the species to which they belong have yet to be named. One gram of soil, less than a teaspoonful, contains around a kilometer of fungal filaments. But even more arresting than soil's diversity and abundance is the question of what it actually is. Most people see it as a dull mass of ground-up rock and dead plants, but it turns out to be a biological structure on the planet, built by living creatures to secure their survival, like a wasp's nest or a beaver dam. Microbes make cements out of carbon with which they stick particles together, creating pores and passages through which water, oxygen, and nutrients pass. The tiny clumps they build become the blocks the animals in soil use to construct bigger labyrinths. It reveals why soil can also break down so quickly when it's farmed under certain conditions when farmers apply too much nitrogen. The microbes respond by burning through the carbon and the cement that holds their tunnels together. Passages collapse, the soil becomes sodden, airless, and compacted. The biological structure of soil also helps to explain its resistance to being too dry and too wet with droughts and floods. If soil were just a heap of matter, it would be swept away. Soil is also full of bacteria that help plants stay healthy and grow. So it might not be as beautiful to the eye as a rainforest or a coral reef, but once you begin to understand it, it's beautiful to the mind. And climate change is making soil's job harder. It's not just making production of food more difficult, but the quality of food is changing as higher temperatures and higher concentrations of CO2 reduce the levels of minerals, protein, and vitamins that crops contain. The solution is not just throwing more water to try and make the ground healthier because there is less and less water. It takes a combination of really understanding that soil is more than just a thin cushion between rock and air on which human life depends. 
And George points out that while there are international treaties on telecommunications, civil aviation, investment guarantees, intellectual properties, and all sorts of things, there is no global treaty on soil. The notion that this complex and scarcely understood system can withstand all we throw at it and continue to support us could be the most dangerous of all our beliefs. What's recommended, of course, is making sure that we're smart about what we do above ground and how it impacts underground. Farming and beef production is greatly harming the quality of the soil and life underground. And making sure that there is a new global food system that's resilient, distributed, diverse, and sustainable. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there is a Climate Report social media page. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. And please don't forget to call 530-265-9555 in order to pledge your support. Because again, while many believe the climate and environmental crisis is a crisis of technology and or money, studies have shown we currently have all the technology and money and solutions we need to begin solving the crisis today. This is not a crisis of technology, money, ideas, or solutions. It is a crisis of communication. And KVMR is here to fill that gap and play an important role in communicating all of the most relevant data regarding how we interact with nature and the climate. So please consider becoming a member and pledging your ongoing support. Let them know that the Climate Report is important to you. Volunteers are parked at the station right now, ready to answer phones, and they'll accept any amount of support that you're able to provide. Again, that number is 530-265-9555 or go to kvmr.org. And we thank everyone for supporting KVMR.